0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall take a look at a few of the recent failures and challenges facing the Democratic Party in the face of an oncoming wave of anti-democratic forces bent on establishing an entrenched minority rule government through aggressive gerrymandering and voter suppression. Clips today are from Counterspin, Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, All In With Chris Hayes, the PBS NewsHour, The Brian Lehrer Show, and The Rachel Maddow Show, with an additional members-only clip from All In With Chris Hayes.
1: Well, it's like no matter what happens, elites, including elite media, try to cram it into the same frame. The lesson is always the same. Your latest for FAIR.org describes a post-election phenomenon that listeners will recognize from today's headlines, but it's not really new at all. What are you talking about there?
2: Well, the last article I wrote is about this phone call that happened right after the election among House Democrats. This was a private conversation, but it got leaked to the press, in which the right wing of the party started to just go off on the left wing, blaming the left for the election being not the blowout that they had hoped. So, you know, there was a lot of expectation going into election night that Democrats would boost their House majority, they would get the Senate, they'd get the presidency, they'd get a lot of state legislatures. And very quickly, it turned out that that just didn't come to pass. There was a lot of finger pointing that started from the right toward the left, saying, Well, you know, the reason that this didn't play out how we thought is because you on the left were talking about socialism, you were talking about Medicare for all, you were talking about the Green New Deal, you were talking about all sorts of things that made it hard for us to get reelected, to get new seats, to win the swing districts. This is a moment of reckoning. We need to move forward learning from our mistakes, and the mistakes were all yours. (laughs) The left wing of the party, you know, represented by folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, shot back saying, you know, listen, we don't need to be pointing fingers right now, but if you're going to start doing that, let's really step back and, and take a look at what happened and let's look at what how the campaigning was done. Were we really all in on digital? Were we using best practices? We weren't knocking on doors, partly, largely because of the pandemic, but was that a mistake? There were some progressives who did decide to continue knocking on doors in a safe way. And there were a lot of decisions that were made about campaigning that one could look at. One could also look at the fact that you know, a lot of these positions that the left has been pushing are, in fact, very popular. So the idea that this is what sunk the Democrats just seems very disingenuous. So you think, okay, well, this is a story about what went wrong, right? What went wrong for the Democrats? It's going to take a while to give a full accounting of this. But for the major, you know, establishment press, instead of trying to actually figure out whether the right wing here is correct, they basically just republish all the accusations. They give a little space for the left to defend itself. But the Washington Post article that I looked at, the balance of sources in this article was remarkable. They quoted and paraphrased 14 sources that blamed the left, and that was counterbalanced by four sources that defended the left. It's also really interesting to note that a lot of those sources were anonymous, the right-wing Democrats versus were anonymous, and twice they were described just as Democrats, rather than as what they like to call centrist Democrats or moderate Democrats. So there was a line that the Post included that was something like, privately Democrats have said that the answer is obvious. It's because the party is running too far to the left. Well, do Democrats say that? Do all Democrats say that? this is one of the things that just drives me insane about media coverage like this and should drive everyone insane, I think, who who believes in a free and fair press, is that you characterize all Democrats as having this position. It erases the left wing of the party, and it makes it seem like the legitimate position of the party is the one that's voiced by its right. It totally marginalizes the left wing of the party. This is happening because this is who the corporate reporters are feeling closest to. This is who's in their rolodexes. I was looking back at the interview that we did about election coverage during the primaries, and it just it's such a familiar script. This is baked in to the media coverage and has been forever, because this is who the sources are. Corporate media sources in the Democratic Party, they just tend to be the more right-wing, the more establishment sources. That's who they're comfortable calling. That's who they talk to all the time. It was probably who they hang out with playing softball on the weekends, for all we know.
1: Right. Well, it's also almost vertigo-inducing how media will pump up, not just editorially, but through these kind of sourcing tricks and tropes in reporting, as you're just describing, the idea that talking about Medicare for all is too radical or a Green New Deal is is a step too far and turns voters off. And then you'll turn the page and read about a poll that says that in fact, those ideas are popular. And I guess that's kind of one of the things that I resent most about elite media coverage on this is the way they, they lie to us about us, even though we know they know it, you know? So how can you be fronting this argument that these ideas are so unpopular when they know from their own polling data that in fact, these ideas are very popular?
3: Senator Joe Manchin speaking on Fox News is shocking the White House. In a statement, the White House press secretary Jen Psaki essentially accused Manchin of lying, saying his comments were, quote, at odds with his discussions this week with the president, with White House staff, and with his own public utterances. Independent Senator Bernie Sanders also criticized Manchin's decision.
4: He's going to have to tell the people of West Virginia why he doesn't want to expand Medicare to cover dental, hearing and eyeglasses. I've been to West Virginia a number of times, and it's a great state, beautiful people. But it is a state that is struggling. And he's going to have to tell the people of West Virginia why he's rejecting what the scientists of the world are telling us, that we have to act boldly and transform our energy system to protect future generations from the devastation of climate change. You know, what's going on now, Jake, in Washington is the big money interests are pouring hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to make sure that we continue to pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs that the rich do not stop paying their fair share of taxes. And I would have hoped that we could have had at least 50 Democrats on board who have the guts to stand up for working families and take on the lobbyists and the powerful special interests.
3: Massachusetts Congresswoman Brianna Presley appeared on CNN and condemned Manchin. This is
2: about Joe Manchin obstructing the president's agenda, obstructing the people's agenda, you know, uh, torpedoing our opportunity to advance unprecedented advancements, to address the hurt that this pandemic-induced recession has caused, and to get this pandemic under control.
3: Ayanna Pressley was one of six progressive Democrats in the House who voted against a separate infrastructure bill, saying it should have been coupled together with the Build Back Better plan due to their fear that only the smaller package would pass if they were voted on separately. Manchin has proved the six progressive Democrats to be correct. We're joined now by another of those six progressive Dems, Congressmember Jamal Bowman of New York. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Congressmember Bowman. Can you respond to who Manchin is beholden to here?
5: He's beholden to his donors. He's beholden to dark money and he's beholden to special interests. And by dark money, we mean big donors that cannot be tracked or traced. And special interests have been heavily involved in the negotiation process uh, for Build Back Better throughout this entire year, uh, the pharmaceutical lobby has spent more money lobbying this year than it ever has in its history—hundreds of millions of dollars. Senator Manchin has—Manchin, excuse me—has raised more money this year than he ever has in his career. So has Senator Sinema, by the way. So we're not talking about senators who are responding to the needs of their people. West Virginia has the seventh highest child poverty rate in the country. West Virginia has uh, horrible climate conditions that need to be addressed. Senator Manchin is not talking about the people of West Virginia or the people of America. He's talking, he's responding to uh, big special interests and his donors.
3: You know, Congressmember Bowman, it's often said he's the largest recipient of oil, gas and coal money uh, of any senator in the country. But this point you are making about big pharma. On Sunday, Senator Sanders accused Manchin of not having the guts to take on pharmaceutical and other powerful special interests. Manchin's long had this close relationship with big pharma. His daughter, Heather Bresch, is the former president and CEO of of the drug company Mylan. Uh, during her time as CEO, she drew outrage when the company raised the price of its life saving EpiPen used by millions to reverse fatal allergic reactions. She raised the cost of it by 400 percent. She later received a $31 million payout, and her company, Mylan, gave massive contributions to her father, uh, Senator Manchin. Uh, Can you talk specifically about this? Because, in fact, Manchin on Fox talked about um, drug prices, even when he talked about killing the bill.
5: Yeah, we also have to consider the committees that he uh, is, a, are affiliate, is affiliated with uh, in the Senate. Yeah, his daughter uh, increased her salary by 671%. You know, this is a senator who believes that this is OK, that this is business as usual, and there's no problem at all with his family benefiting from uh, investments in and, and payments from the pharmaceutical uh, lobby. Unfortunately, he is not the only one. Many of my colleagues in the House and the Senate think it's OK for big money to continue to control how Congress behaves. You know, this is capitalism. Many of my colleagues are capitalists and, and, they, and they celebrate this and they are uh, completely um, OK with this. You know, they're OK with Citizens United. They're OK with uh, corporations being designated as people and money being designated as free speech. This is the problem with Washington. And as we build back better in an equitable way and work together to save our democracy, we have to look special interests and big money directly in the face and deal with it and change how we do business in Washington. We cannot have a democracy with this level of inequality and this behavior happening in Washington. We just had an insurrection on January 6th, partly because we have a system that allowed someone like Donald Trump to get to the White House in the first place. And now we have 20 million at least people radicalized across the country ready to fight for, you know, their liberties and freedoms um, as white nationalists. So, This is all connected and correlated, and Manchin is representative of all of that, as well as an old patriarchy that doesn't want to support uh, women getting back to work, particularly women of color, doesn't want to support paid leave, uh, doesn't want to support universal childcare, and all the things that would benefit historically marginalized and disenfranchised people.
6: Politics continues to be a massive corrupting force among our lawmakers. Equally egregious behavior includes trading individual stocks, even when these members of Congress have access to insider information. Now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was asked about this behavior and she didn't like it. But before we get to her pretty embarrassing video on this. I do want to go to this investigation that was done by Insider in regard to the so-called Stock Act. This was legislation that was passed under the Obama administration that was meant to prevent members of Congress from engaging in insider trading, especially considering the fact that these are people who have insider information, information that we as ordinary citizens are not privy to. And if they're able to trade individual stocks, well, they could very easily engage in insider trading. So this Stock Act was incredibly weak. So let me just get that off the bat. However, it did force members of Congress to report their stock trades. And it didn't just include members of Congress, it also included their spouses and their staffers. So if they were making um, in 2021. And if they were doing stock trades of $1,000 or more, they're supposed to report it. But did they? Well, here's what we know from this insider investigation. Insider's investigation of financial disclosures found that 49 members of Congress and at least 182 of the highest paid Capitol Hill staffers. Were late in filing their stock trades during 2020 and 2021. Now uh, lawmakers and uh, senior congressional staffers who blow past these deadlines, they're supposed to report it uh, between 30 and 45 days, okay? To uh, basically disclose these stock trades. Um, If they're late, if they blow past the deadlines established by this 2012 Stop Trading and Congressional Knowledge Act, on Congressional Knowledge Act, um, they're supposed to pay a late fee of $200 the first time. Increasingly higher fines follow if they continue to be late, potentially costing tens of thousands of dollars in extreme cases. Now, did they end up disclosing in time? And if they didn't, were they fined? Well, uh, based on this investigation, it seems like it ain't happening. And that the enforcement mechanisms here are weak to say the least. No public records exist, for instance, indicating whether these officials ever paid the fines. Congressional ethics staff wouldn't even confirm the existence of non-public ledgers tracking how many officials paid fines for violating the Stock Act. And also 19 lawmakers wouldn't even bother answering questions about whether they paid a penalty. 10 other lawmakers said, yeah, yeah, we paid the fines, but they declined to provide proof, such as a receipt or canceled check. Now, Nancy Pelosi was asked about this investigation and whether members of Congress should be able to trade individual stocks in the first place. And her answer, I think, is to be expected. Let's watch.
7: You should members of Congress and their spouses be banned from trading individual stocks while serving in Congress?
6: No, I don't know
3: to the second one. But but Congress, yeah. Because this is a free market and people, we have a free market economy, they should be able to participate in that.
6: Nancy Pelosi has done very well in the stock market, and so has her husband. And it doesn't surprise me at all that she would use this pathetic excuse of free market to essentially provide cover for what these members of Congress are doing. But make no mistake about it. This is insider trading. They have insider information and their stock portfolios tend to outperform the overall stock market. Gee, I wonder why is it because they're these incredibly intelligent investors or could it be that they have information that others don't, Jake,
8: There's two different issues here. One is the absurd system of reporting uh, these stock trades. Uh, So in the Senate, it's actually a little halfway better, okay? When you're late to report, they send you an email, and then you have to respond, okay? Now they're the it doesn't look like they follow up too aggressively either, but at least they have a system in place. In the house, it's a joke. Um, they don't even track it. They say, Oh, you're supposed to track it on your own out of good faith. Wink. Uh, and so they don't send you an email, they don't follow up, and if you don't pay, there are no consequences, no one's ever chased down. In fact, they won't even tell the members how to pay. Uh, members have asked, the, the ones that wanted to actually report themselves, have asked several times, hey, what do I do? Who do I make it out to? Uh, here, Insider did a very good job in this five-month investigation and uh, found Treasury can't find any of the checks. No, the House side is clearly choosing to not abide by the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're And that, gee, who's their leader? Oh, There she is, Nancy Pelosi. And so, Listen, and by Jim, the way, when the Republicans were in charge, they didn't abide by the law either.
6: Yeah, this isn't a Democrat or Republican thing. This is about corruption. This is about insider trading. This is about people who raised their hands, decided to run to become public servants, and then turn around and say, no, it's a free market. I mean, obviously, I should uh be able to uh, take advantage of this role that I have to Choose stocks that are obviously going to outperform the market because I'm privy to the insider information and obviously they have control over what legislation gets introduced, what legislation gets voted on, and if they have any sense that they might regulate certain sectors of the economy that could hurt the stock value of certain companies. Well, again, that is incredibly important information that is going to have an impact on the markets and they're gonna be able to make these predictions based on that insider information. By the way, the other thing is, if they're heavily invested in a certain business, are they gonna wanna pass regulations that could hurt that business, hurt the profit motive for that business?
8: I'm gonna go to our members. So shipwrecked super yacht wrote in, funny enough. <laughs> uh, how free is the market really if they use inside information to manipulate the price of stocks? And that's exactly it. That's the second gigantic issue here and the one that Pelosi's addressing. So she says, Oh, well, basically all of the members should be able to buy any stocks they like. Remember the stories about the reporting requirements, but a lot of people say, wait, you should all put it into a blind trust. Otherwise, you know exactly what to invest in and just reporting it doesn't actually solve anything, right? So when asked about that, that's when Pelosi said, free market, baby. First of all, that sounds like a Republican. It's, It's absurd to just say free market on its own, free market how, what do you mean, in what context? In this context, part of the protection of the free market is to make sure that there are laws against insider trading. Otherwise, you don't have a free market. So a person you could ask about that is Martha Stewart. She went to prison, uh, for violating these types of rules, right? But when it comes to the most powerful people in the country, all of a sudden prison. I mean, another member wrote in about prison, ain't nobody going to prison. No one's going I mean, to a fine. by the way, you can make tens of millions of dollars. The fines $200 for just reporting late. If you reported in on time, they're like, I am stuck at anything you like. Who gives a damn? We're all getting rich, baby. So uh, that brings us to Mr. Pelosi. So uh, they're about to uh, introduce an antitrust bill against Google and some of the other big tech firms. And guess who winds up cashing out on a call option, it appears? Mr. Pelosi, the speaker's husband, and but it's a tiny little amount. It, it appears, according to the reporting, that his profit was $5.3 million. Okay, mm, I you have mean, any idea what kind of bet you got to lay down to make a profit of $5.3 million? Okay, and he happened to, it appears, cash out right before they introduced antitrust bill against Google yeah. and hold hearings. But another amazing coincidence, and we call that free market, baby.
9: Former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid of Nevada has died at the age of 82. Reid was a truly fascinating person. He was a boxer. He was head of the Nevada Gaming Commission. He served in the House, all before going to the Senate, where he served for 30 years. He led the Senate Democratic Caucus from 2005 to 2017, helping President Barack Obama pass through major legislation like the Affordable Care Act. Senator Chuck Schumer, who succeeded Reid as the leader of the Senate Democrats, released a statement tonight saying, quote, Harry Reid was one of the most amazing individuals I've ever met. He was tough as nails, strong, but caring and compassionate, and always went out of his way quietly to help people who needed help. Faz Shakir was a senior advisor to Senator Harry Reid, and he joins me now. Um, Faz, thanks for joining us on short notice. And I I first met you over a decade ago, I think, when you were working for Senator uh, uh, Reid, and I know... Um, his mentorship and working for them was really a formative experience. Maybe you just say a little bit about what the man was like to work for.
10: Not just for me, but there you could have countless numbers of former Reed staff on here tonight who would all tell you the same thing. There was a unique ethic around Harry Reid. I, I learned it when I first joined him, a, a culture of team Reid, and I remember thinking when I joined him, like, this is kind of a cult, what, what is this team Reid philosophy? And you and you learn almost immediately upon working for this individual, he inspires a loyalty. Where's that loyalty come from? It's a, it's this place of, of, of a selflessness that's rare of a public official, he, he learns and cares and thinks about the people around him and got to know their families, knew what drive them. I often think about some of these individuals in public life and what are their superhuman traits qualities. For Harry Reid, it wasn't like his ability to do a speech, as you well know. It was not great eloquence on the floor. It was around knowing people, knowing what makes them tick, and inspiring a a sense of getting the most out of them, putting them in positions to succeed. And there are so many staff who could tell you, regale you with stories of just uh, unusual Uh, Does the desire on his part to reach out and care for another and you know it's rare in a public officials these days where you know obviously you're driven by social media and all kinds of other stuff to find humans like him who truly believed in the ethic of public service to think about others before himself.
9: There was a there's a uh, he had a fascinating career um, and, and there were a few different evolutions he underwent that I think are, are key to understanding our political moment. And I think partly because I look at you and, and Adam Jennelson and other Reed staffers who've gone on to staff, you know, other people and Bernie Sanders uh, a, a among them. You know, Reed was um, he was a he was sort of an immigration hawk uh, when he started. Um, he was uh, opposed to abortion. He was a devout Mormon. He was uh you know, I think from a kind of centrist mold, uh, he was also kind of institutionalist. And he sorts of he evolves over the course of his career on both his kind of substantive ideological vision and also his view towards the nature of the Republican Party, and the nature of the Senate as an institution in really surprising ways. He, he, a little like John Paul Stevens in some ways, in that way, that, you know, where where he started and where he ended up in public life is a fascinating trajectory um, with, with integrity throughout I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
10: Yeah, in many ways, he, uh, you know, on some of those issues that you raise, he evolved with the Democratic Party and the majority of the people within the Democratic Party. He was very mindful and not kind of stubborn about where he might have started from, but say, hey, you know, this is where, in some sense, in some sense allow yourself to evolve with the circumstances. And nothing probably exemplifies that more, you know, Chris, and you and I remember it, when he changed the Senate rules, right? He fought to say, hey, listen, these Senate rules don't work anymore. I'm a, I'm a Senate traditionalist. I believe in this institution. However, you, you have President Obama's nominees being stalemated one after another. I'm going to change the rules. I'm going to go ahead and do it. And I think that instance exemplified one element of Harry Reid, I'll carry forth through, you know, forever, which is this desire to just, Embrace the fight when the fight needed to be had. And I mean, think there's, there's too often kind of, a, you, know, you know, this desire for bipartisanship, a comedy. Of course, we want all those things. We want, you know, a, a decent relationship with each other in, the, in politics. But the purpose of politics, as Harry Reid understood very well, is to get stuff done. Mm -hmm. And so I I, I think part of it is this hard scrap of life. You should remember he went through, like, you know, grew up in poverty, was a boxing commissioner, almost almost was died, almost was killed. And
9: remember in a car bomb, right, planted by the mob. And it just the mob tried to assassinate him, literally tried to assassinate him uh, because he was going after them as the gaming commissioner. And they put a car bomb underneath a car that was discovered before he got in it, right?
10: Yes. And, and he lost an eye late in life. You remember from a freak accident? Yep. It cost him eyesight and one eye. He was diagnosed with cancer late in life, pancreatic cancer. And... It t- it, it, and- the grit of the man was that we just charge through and fight. Nothing, no no obstacles, no barriers are going to stop us. We're going to continue to to care and fight for the things that we know need to get done. It, it, there's a kind of an ethic of that old school politician in him that was, you know, come from hard things. We know hard things and we do hard things here. And I think that's one of the lessons I, you know, I hope people take away is that he was a person, as you mentioned, evolved over time on some core views, but never forgot where he came from, had principal convictions to the end about the things that he believed politicians should be fighting for, and not himself, but for others, and was willing to change rules, was willing to evolve with the circumstances to get things done. And that is his legacy.
9: One more question about about politics and political organizing. You know, we we live in an era in which there's a lot of fake organizing and fake organizations that don't actually have power to wield. They don't have structures. Um, You know, read. Help build this organization in the state of Nevada. And it was an organization of the Democratic Party and of the Hotel Workers Union of real rank and file hotel workers, that, you know, fused together. And, it, you know, it functioned like a machine in some ways. Right. I mean, the, the way the political machines do not corruptly, but as yeah, a machine. Absolutely. But but there's almost nothing else like it in America. What what? And he was the one who really helped yes. put that together.
10: He often told fellow senators to care about your state Democratic parties. He built a state Democratic Party there to deliver Democratic wins. I mean, if you look at the trajectory of Nevada, now you have a trifecta in the state, a Democratic governor. You've got uh, the, the really kind of recognition of Nevada as a blue state, which was certainly, as you remember, when we were growing up, you know, 20, 20 years ago, that was not how we would think of Nevada. It was Harry Reid who ushered all of that in. And how did he do it? Well, it was it was the fusion, to use your word, fusion of the team Reid loyalty, inspiring and and, and, and understanding a generation of people who are good at politics, right? who who kind of he knew were talented, putting them in positions to succeed, and then playing some brass knuckle politics, old school brass knuckle politics. Get, like I will saying, get things done, like worry about the end state. I remember Senator Reid sitting around one time saying, well, you know, why do I care if, like, you know, 60, 70, 80% of people like me? I have to win 50 plus one. <laughs> you know, it was, it was this brass knuckleball to say, all I got to do is win, get across the finish line. That's how he built the party. He's like, we're not here to try to, like, have these grandiose visions of everybody in the world loving me, uh, uh, although I think that they should. But he was like, listen, we got we to win, and we got to deliver for people. And that's how he built a machine in that state. And uh, to this day, I think we will outlast him. Uh, there are so many things that will outlast him as the marker of a great and wonderful human being that he was.
11: The congressional redistricting process that takes place every 10 years is in full swing. And the stakes are even higher than usual because the margins in Congress are so tight. Democrats control the House of Representatives by just three seats. Due to population changes, this year, six states, most in the South, gained a congressional district with Texas adding two more seats. In turn, seven states, largely in the Rust Belt, will be losing a seat adding to that drama, consider these maps are being made in a pandemic and amidst razor-sharp political divide. To dive in, I'm joined by two redistricting heavyweights, David Wasserman of the Cook Political Report and Colby Ikowitz of the Washington Post. Let me just start by setting the table for the two of you. In just a few words, can you describe this redistricting process right now, David?
12: It's an arms race, and Republicans have an upper hand in it. Uh, They're likely to benefit uh, in terms of of seats by a modest amount. But the biggest victim in all of this gerrymandering is competition. Uh, We're likely to see the number of competitive seats in the House reduced by as much as a third.
3: And
13: Colby? I would add to that disappointing for voting rights advocates, for voters who over the last decade had approved ballot initiatives by huge margins asking for politics and partisanship to be taken out of this process. And in so many states, it still remains to be the case that politicians are drawing lines and and choosing voters uh, instead of voters choosing them.
11: Okay, let's dive in first with the where. Looking at some of the maps, we've picked two illustrative states and we're going to start with Illinois, first of all. Uh, Here is what the state congressional maps look like before they're changed you see red and blue divide red republican blue for the democrats and of course yellow for competitive states then here is the new map as it stands right now you see a change with that more blue growing and that new blue district through the middle in the bottom david what's going on in illinois
12: this is a pretty aggressive democratic gerrymander and currently illinois is 13 republicans and 5 democrats Governor JB Pritzker just signed a map into law that uh aims to give Democrats 14 seats to th- just 3 for Republicans. Now, of course, just because you draw a map doesn't win you doesn't mean you automatically win the seats. Democrats could still see a couple of districts backfire on them if they have a bad cycle. But it just goes to show the lengths uh to which parties go to to try and entrench uh, their advantage.
11: All right, let's talk about the Lone Star State with the two-seat pickup, Texas. Here is what the Texas congressional map looks like. You notice those competitive seats there down around Houston and a little bit north. Here is where Texas is moving to, the new map. You see now more blue states and that just one streak of yellow becoming more partisan. Colby, Texas is a state that has gained largely because of a gain in its most diverse population, What do these seats mean? What's happening there?
13: So of the about 4 million uh, new population found in the census uh, in Texas, more than 2 million of that came from Latinos. And Latinos did not gain a new district in this map. And so there's a lot of litigation going on about that particular issue. Now, when you look at the map, it looks like it's pretty fair to Democrats. To your point, there's more blue of the two seats um, that Texas gains. One is going to Democrats around Austin. Republicans are taking the other. But what the Republicans have strategically done is they've shored up their incumbents and they've also taken away competitive seats. There's only that one competitive seat left. And what that means is that the demographics of Texas continue to change as more Latinos continue to move into the state. They're trying to ensure that those competitive seats wouldn't have turned blue. Now they're safe for Republicans for the better part of the next
11: decade. Mm -hmm. And of course, both of these states like many, are going to see a number of lawsuits over all of these maps. In the meanwhile, I also want to ask you all about the who, who is drawing these maps, the map makers. We've seen something change this year that's really interesting. I want to show our viewers which states have independent redistricting commissions. You sum all that up, as I know you have, David, and more than a quarter of congressional seats are being mapped out by these independent redistricting commissions. David, what do the maps made by those independent commissions look like so far? And what do we think that means in the in the end?
12: So Colorado and Montana, both of which are gaining a seat, have commissions. They've passed maps uh, that create districts that could be competitive uh, next year. But commissions are a big reason why Democrats are at a disadvantage here, because a number of Blue states like California, New Jersey, Virginia, Colorado, Washington State, they've adopted these reforms, whereas redder states like Texas have not. And so Republicans have the power to draw more than twice as many congressional districts as Democrats, and that's a reason why they're favored for House control next year.
11: Colby, one thing about these commissions I'm not sure everyone understands. The idea of an independent commission doesn't necessarily mean the map will be nonpartisan. Where are we seeing examples that perhaps the state legislature still is intervening here when perhaps voters wanted um, something outside of the legislature to act?
13: Well, one state that we're still waiting to see what they do is New York. New York uh, voters passed what was called an advisory commission. An advisory commission went around the state of of independent actors that were put on this commission. They went around New York holding public hearings. They put together maps and they went around holding hearings again on those maps, but it's not binding. And so the maps that they put together, the Democratic legislature uh, in New York with a Democratic governor can just override what they did mm-hmm. and draw a map to their advantage. And, and like Dave said, the Democrats are at such a disadvantage uh, in this process overall is that you look to places like Illinois and New York and you think, do the Democrats uh, unilaterally disarm or do they try to draw lines as much to their advantage as possible uh, so that they can try uh, to keep the House?
11: One last question for you both. Can you talk about the arms race, as I think you called it, David, here? How much money is going into all of this? How much does this process impact who's in charge in our government versus other things we talk about, like voting rights, all of those debates? Can you explain to viewers what's involved in the stakes right now, David?
12: Yeah. Redistricting tends to get less attention than fights over voting procedures, but it's much more consequential to outcomes. That's why the parties are pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into legal fights and and strategy over redistricting. Keep in mind that because neither Congress nor the Supreme Court has acted to put up any guardrails against gerrymandering, state Supreme Courts could be the last backstop against the most extreme impulses of partisans who are in charge of drawing maps, essentially choosing their own voters to to benefit their their own party's electoral prospects.
11: Colby, what stakes do you see?
13: Absolutely. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is holding onto the House, like you noted, by a very, very slim margin. And so when you draw these lines, any little bit, you know, a shift of of a seat here or a seat there could mean the Republicans take control in 2022. And so there is so much at stake. There are legal fights in almost all of the states that have drawn maps. The Republicans are going to fight in places like Illinois, in places like Maryland and New York. And the Democrats are going to fight everywhere else. And you're going to see this thing play out for years and years and years just to try to get back a seat or two, because that's how fraught this process is.
14: Yesterday, at the birthplace of American democracy, President Biden delivered a speech on the topic of voting rights, taking aim at Trump's so called big lie, which he says is now being used as an excuse to pass restrictive voting laws in conservative majority legislatures across the country. Here's a president yesterday. If you
4: lose, you accept the results, you follow the Constitution, you try again, you don't call facts fake. then try to bring down the American experiment just because you're unhappy. That's not statesmanship. That's not statesmanship. That's selfishness. That's not democracy. It's a denial of the right to vote.
14: That was President Biden yesterday in Philadelphia. And elsewhere in the speech... He implored Congress to pass voter legislation, namely the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And though his tone was emphatic, President Biden offered few specifics on how Democrats might pass a voting bill through a narrowly divided Congress and remained silent on the filibuster, which stands in the way of any voting legislation in the Senate. With us now to talk about the president's speech and fights over voting laws playing out across the country is Ari Berman, senior reporter at Mother Jones, covering voting rights and author of Give Us the Ballot, the Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari, welcome back to WNYC.
15: Hey, Rebecca. Good to talk to you. Thank you.
14: All right. You talked to a lawmaker recently who told you that they wish the president would fight for voting rights as hard as has been fighting for infrastructure. So do you think yesterday's speech signaled any shift in a priority for the president?
15: I think what it did is rhetorically it emphasized the president's commitment to the issue. And President Biden tried to lay out in very stark terms what is happening in this country. He called it a 21st century Jim Crow assault on voting rights. He said the choice was between democracy and autocracy. It was his most detailed statements to date uh, about the attack on voting rights. And there was a real passion behind it. But the second part of that is what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. And that was the part that disappointed voting rights advocates, because they want Joe Biden to engage with how are you going to pass the congressional legislation that you say is a national imperative. And everyone knows that the filibuster stands in the way of that. But Biden didn't mention the F word, the filibuster. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed like there was this incredible sense of urgency among the president to communicate to the American people, the attack on voting rights, but not the same urgency To pass congressional legislation that would stop that attack on voting rights.
14: You wrote recently that, quote, historically presidents have been pressured into supporting voting rights legislation rather than leading the way. Can you give us some examples uh, and why do you think that's the case?
15: The best example is Lyndon Johnson and the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. Lyndon Johnson was broadly supportive of voting rights when he became president, but he met with Martin Luther King in December 1964. Martin Luther King had just won the Nobel Peace Prize, and Martin Luther King asked Lyndon Johnson to support a Voting Rights Act in 1965. And Lyndon Johnson said, listen, I just signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964. I have other things I want to do. Voting rights is going to have to wait. And so Martin Luther King went down to Selma, Alabama to lead a months long effort to register black voters. And he said, I'm going to force you to pass a Voting Rights Act. I'm going to create the conditions that you cannot ignore this issue. And then when there was this famous march in Selma, Alabama, on March 7th, 1965, Bloody Sunday, when civil rights activists, including the great civil rights leader John Lewis, were brutally beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Lyndon Johnson could no longer ignore the issue. But what Mm -hmm. Lyndon Johnson did is once voting rights became something that you can no longer ignore, he quickly moved legislatively. He introduced the Voting Rights Act eight days after Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, and made this an issue that Congress had to pass. It was very clear that after Selma, a Voting Rights Act had to pass in 1965. I don't think that Joe Biden feels that same sense of urgency. I think he believes Mm -hmm. that the attack on voting rights is wrong and shameful, but I think he believes it can be overcome through other means. And that's where there's a disagreement between voting rights groups who see congressional legislation as the only solution, and the president and his advisors who think they can out organize or out litigate this, which is honestly going to be very difficult to do.
14: So President Biden called on Congress to pass pass both the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. But as we said, and as you said, he didn't offer any specifics on how Congress could actually get there. Uh, First, Can you just remind listeners the difference between those two bills? And were you surprised at all that he called for passing both?
15: No, I wasn't surprised because they're both uh, very important and they do different Mm. things. The For the People Act sets national protections for voting rights that apply equally in all states for federal elections. So it put in place policies like automatic voter registration and two weeks of early voting and a ban on partisan gerrymandering and more disclosure of dark money for all 50 states for con- for federal elections. So things like congressional elections and presidential elections. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act is more narrowly tailored. It restores the section of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court gutted in 2013, which is that states with a long history of discrimination would once again have to approve their voting changes with the federal government that would apply to places like Georgia and Texas, that have a long history of discrimination and a more recent history of discrimination, but it would not apply to all 50 states. So it's kind of like the carrot and the stick approach. The carrot is the For the People Act. It puts in place those policies that would make it easier to vote equally all across the country. Mm -hmm. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act is the stick. It would say to those states with the longest histories of discrimination, you need to approve your voting changes with the federal government again to make sure you don't suppress the votes in the future.
16: days we have been covering this strange story you think would be getting more Beltway Press. Uh, It's a story of how the Senate agreed, they just agreed, to create an exception to the filibuster so they could pass the debt ceiling today. Are you asleep? Did you fall asleep there for a second? Did that get very boring very quickly? I know, I know. But there's one part of this that is worth waking up for, whether or not you care about the stupid debt ceiling. The question is, if they can carve out an exception to the filibuster for that, Why can't they do it for anything else? Why couldn't they do it for, say, voting rights? So voting rights protections could pass the Senate with a simple majority. In this Senate, that would mean voting rights could pass with just Democratic votes, since Republicans definitely won't do it. I've been kind of tearing my hair out and hollering about this over here at the kids' table for a little while now, but today, somebody who knows how to talk about these things much better than I do, um, he finally put it the way this ought to be put. Senator Raphael Warnock of the great state of Georgia is one of the best orators the United States Senate has seen in a very, very long time. Watch him on this today. Watch.
17: Democrats have tried again and again to engage our Republican friends in a discussion on this issue, one that lies at the foundation of our democracy. And time and time again, because of a lack of good faith engagement, the rules of the Senate have prevented us from moving that conversation forward. We could not imagine. We could not imagine. Changing the rules. That is. Until last week. Because last week we did exactly that. Be very clear last week we changed the rules of the Senate. To address another important issue, the economy. This is a step, a change in the Senate rules we haven't been willing to take to save our broken democracy, but one that a bipartisan majority of this chamber thought was necessary in order to keep our economy strong. We changed the rules to protect the full faith and credit of the United States government. We've decided we must do it for the economy, but not for the democracy. I come to the floor today to share with the people of Georgia and the American people, the message that I shared with my colleagues over the weekend. I said to my Democratic colleagues, over the last several days. Number one, unfortunately, the vast majority of our Republican friends have made it clear that they have no intention of trying to work with us to address voter suppression or to protect voting rights. While we cannot let our Republican friends off the hook for not being equitable governing partners, if we are serious about protecting the right to vote that's under assault right now, Here is the truth. It will fall to Democrats to do it. And if Democrats alone must raise the debt ceiling, then Democrats alone must raise and repair the ceiling of our democracy. How do we in good conscience justify doing one and not the other? Some of my Democratic colleagues are saying, but what about What about bipartisanship? Isn't that important? I say, of course it is. But here's the thing we must remember. Slavery was bipartisan. Jim Crow segregation was bipartisan. The refusal of women's suffrage was bipartisan. The denial of the basic dignity of members of the LGBTQ community has long been bipartisan. The three-fifths compromise was the creation of a putative national unity at the expense of black people's basic humanity. So when colleagues in this chamber talk to me about bipartisanship, which I believe in, I just have to ask at whose expense? Who is being asked to foot the bill for this bipartisanship? And is liberty itself the cost? I submit that that's a price too high and a bridge too far. To my democratic colleagues, I say while it is deeply unfortunate, it is more than apparent that it has been left to us to handle alone the task of safeguarding our democracy. The judgment of history is upon us. Future generations will ask when the democracy was in a 911 state of emergency, what did you do to put the fire out? Did we rise to the moment or did we hide behind procedural rules? I believe that we Democrats can figure out how to get this done, even if that requires a change in the rules, which we established just last week, that we can do when the issue is important enough. Well, the people of Georgia and across the country are saying that voting rights are important enough. I think the voting rights are important enough. Once we handle the debt ceiling, the Senate needs to make voting rights the very next issue we take up. We must do voting rights, and we must deal with this issue now.
16: Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia. Amen. Uh, Senator Warnock joins us now live. Senator, thank you so much for being here. I know this has been a big and busy day already, sir.
17: Thank you so very much, Rachel. It's always great to be with you.
16: Senator, you said in your remarks today that you have spoken with your Democratic colleagues about this and that point that you were making, that Republicans have plighted their troth on this and they shouldn't be let off the hook for that. They should be held to account for it. But when it comes to acting, it's never been more clear that it must be Democrats who act. Now that there have been these two exceptions made in the past couple of weeks on the filibuster rule, now, frankly, that the January 6th investigation has revealed so much terrible backstory in terms of how serious the plot was to overthrow the election and to pervert the administration of the election in 2020, um, do, you sh- do you sense any, any movement, any shift among your Democratic colleagues to your way of thinking on this?
17: We've been having some encouraging conversations. I've been talking to many of my colleagues, including Senator Manchin, and I've been talking to Leader Schumer, uh, others throughout the weekend, and uh, I'm going to continue to make the case because, again, I think this is the most important thing we can do this Congress. We make a terrible era of judgment if we behave as if these are ordinary times, these are no ordinary times. And if we don't do something to protect our democracy, here's my fear, Rachel. I, I fear that we may well have crossed a Rubicon that will make it difficult uh, for us to get back what we uh, uh, imagine, what, what, what we take for granted uh, as a democracy. Democracies don't die all at once. Uh, it's a little bit at a time. And anybody who's paying attention right now ought to be concerned. The good news is we have the power to act. We can do something about it. We proved it last week because why? If we didn't act, the economy would be in crisis. And I I thought seriously about voting against raising the debt ceiling. But I was thinking about the people back home. I was especially thinking about the most vulnerable uh, members of our community who were not resilient, who, who would suffer a loss that, that perhaps is unimaginable if we didn't do the responsible thing. Well, I shudder to think what will happen to our democracy if we don't defend it.
0: Reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism Demand Democrats pass voting rights and election protection legislation.
18: A lot of people are talking about 2024, but our most urgent tipping point will come much, much sooner because it's 2022 and the midterms are coming. Those who wish to strong-arm the political future of the country are not going to wait around another three years. Since Trump lost, they have been actively laying the groundwork to make their illiberal democracy a reality. So even though we are all exhausted and weary, time to shake it off. Start imagining living through the days before, during, and after the midterm elections, just a short 11 months from now. Imagine further escalation of harassment and violence meant to intimidate election workers and voters alike. Imagine the chaos at state houses across the country as installed Trump loyalists meddle in and possibly overturn the election results in their dear leader's favor. Imagine watching elections actually be stolen. The unsettling reality is that there is little we can do to prevent the horrifying antics of a minority of our fellow Americans. But we can do something to ensure voting rights and the results of our elections are protected in spite of the attacks that we will surely face. Congress must pass three pieces of legislation which require skirting or ending the filibuster. The Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, and the Protecting Our Democracy Act. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer just announced that the Senate will vote on filibuster rule changes by January 17th. Our job is to organize, keep the pressure on, and hold these politicians accountable. That work is already underway. In December, the Poor People's Campaign held a high-profile motorcade from West Virginia to D.C. to put pressure on Senator Joe Manchin and all Democrats to prioritize voting rights. They are committed to doubling their efforts this year. MoveOn.org and others organized 200 vigils around the country on January 6, some of which will double as voter registration drives, signaling what I hope is the first of more and larger mobilizations. Joining these national groups and others is a great way to make an impact, but experts on authoritarianism also advise again and again that citizens need to be engaged at the hyper-local level. That means joining local groups that run voter registration drives in your communities, signing up to be a poll worker, getting heavily involved in your local elections, school board, and city council meetings. If you can, now is the time to consider running for a local election official position in the wake of mass retirements. Get involved with campaigns to rebuke Trumpian candidates running to be secretary of state, governor, and state legislators in your state. Whatever you can do, do it. Even if you live in a solid blue state, get involved now. You might be saying to yourself, I get it, I do, but I'm so exhausted. All I can say is, I hear you, us too. Maybe there's some consolation in knowing that we are all drained, but these are unprecedented times. We can't choose when history will call us. We just need to promise ourselves and future generations that we will answer the call when it comes. Millions stepped up in 2020, but that was just the beginning. The phone is ringing again now. Let's answer it.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin examining the role of media in framing the debate amongst Democrats. Democracy Now! featured reactions to the failure of the Build Back Better bill. The Young Turks discussed Nancy Pelosi's defense of insider trading among members of Congress. All in with Chris Hayes explored the legacy of former Democratic Senate leader Harry Reid. The PBS NewsHour gave an overview of the impact of redistricting. The Brian Lehrer Show, back in July, discussed Biden's support of voting rights legislation, but his lack of stance on filibuster reform. The update is that within the past two weeks, Biden has made comments in support of making an exception to the filibuster for voting rights legislation.
10: Many of your supporters believe in order to protect democracy in this country, you've got to protect voters' rights. Yes. As we near the end of year one, nothing's been done. It's been blocked by the filibuster. Are you prepared to support fundamental changes in the Senate rules to get this done?
4: Yes. What does that mean? That means whatever it takes. Change the Senate rules to accommodate major pieces of legislation without requiring 60 votes. So you support a carve-out of the filibuster for voting rights? The only thing standing between getting voting rights legislation passed and not getting passed is the filibuster. I support making an exception
19: of voting rights for the filibuster.
0: And under mounting pressure, Senator Schumer spoke just yesterday in support of a similar exception.
19: As I said in my dear colleague earlier this week, if Republicans continue to hijack the rules of the chamber to prevent action on something as critical as protecting our democracy, then the Senate will debate and consider changes to the rules on or before January 17th, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Over the course of history, Mr. President, the Senate has debated voting rights many times and done what was necessary to take action. But rarely did our predecessors face the sort of malice that now confronts our democracy from within. So as we hold this debate, I ask my colleagues to consider this question. If the right to vote is the cornerstone of our democracy, then how can we Democrats permit a situation in which Republicans can pass voter suppression laws at the state level with only a simple majority vote, but not allow the United States Senate to do the same. And I ask that of my Democratic colleagues, my Democratic colleagues."
0: And finally, The Rachel Maddow Show spoke with Senator Raphael Warnock about the need for Democrats to take action on voting rights legislation. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from All In with Chris Hayes diving deeper into the Senate and filibuster rules, which doesn't sound that exciting, but was actually a really good conversation. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you will receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, let's rejoin a conversation already in progress, so previously on Best of Left...
20: Some conservatives have the false notion that sexuality is a choice. But if you examine human nature, it's easy to test by asking yourself, how easy would it be for me to decide to have a different sexuality? You know, if you thought about that, assuming you're heterosexual and you try to imagine being gay or vice versa, that's not an easy choice to just arbitrarily make. So if the answer is that there are people that can choose and I can't or would be difficult for me to choose then there would have to be two tiers of humans those with a stable sexuality presumably hetero in the case of conservatives and those whose sexuality is less stable and they can end up making a wrong choice with the wrong influences
21: I just think that that thought just needs to meditated on by all of us because I, I really think there is something truly insightful about quite insight regarding conservatism or progressivism and, and wanting to change the system versus keep the status quo okay jay i've got it it can't be as simple as saying that people who reduce people into two tiers of humans is the answer, because then that would be to basically force people into two camps of humans, those who think there are two tiers of humans and those who don't. So it gets a a bit recursive there.
0: First, Nick, what you need to understand right up front is that there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who think that all of humanity can be divided neatly into two groups and those who don't. But to attempt to clarify the point that Nick is tripping over, I think that what Kwai is describing is a difference in the way people think, whereas the examples he gives of conservative thinking express a difference in the fundamental humanity and or inherent equality of different groups. So Kwai, in a sense, is creating two groups of people pointing out that people think differently. But he is not taking the next step of questioning their humanity or their inherent equality as humans. In fact, he is doing the opposite by reaffirming everyone's equality. And in Nick's defense, he said in a portion of his voicemail that I cut out, uh, that he was calling late at night and wasn't really at his sharpest. So I'm sure that he has figured out all these clarifications on his own by now. So now you are all caught up and here we are in the new year with new messages on this topic.
21: I'm just saying, Jay, thank you. I listened to my comments and I'm sure whatever editing you did, I called in late at night. I'm sure it was very disjointed and what I heard was very coherent of me speaking. So I really do appreciate the edit you did. <laughs> thank you so much. Love the show. I haven't listened to your comments as of calling you back here. But the edit you did of that rambling screed was was great. I really appreciated it.
7: Thank you. Hi, Jay. This is Scott from Canada. At the end of the last show, while addressing Nick's comments, you made the very important point that categorizing people is useful. For example, differentiating between people with mutable conservative opinions versus people with mutable liberal opinions. While essentializing people is dangerous, for example, differentiating between immutably more law-abiding white people versus immutably less law-abiding people of color, I agree with that point, but then you suggested that conservatives make that very mistake when they suggest homosexuality is a choice, isn't it so that you are the one who is essentializing gay people by saying gay people are naturally attracted to same-sex people? That sexuality is inherent. If it is a choice, then homosexuality is not inherent. Right. They aren't essentializing. You are. Not that there's anything wrong with that. We can essentialize gay people as gay and all is well. Having said all that, I don't know why that is. I can't explain why regarding a black person as essentially black, and essentially different. Constantly has bad outcomes. While regarding a gay person as essentially gay and different has no bad outcomes, unless I'm completely out in left field, I'm hoping you can see what I'm saying and maybe address that point. Thanks, Jay.
0: As always... Thanks to those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestoftheleft.com. So for the full context of those voicemails that I only played clips of, they can be found in episodes 1461 and 1463, respectively, and... Now we're all caught up and have Scott's question to answer. And the good news for Scott, I think, is that he is somewhat out in left field, and he is working with a faulty premise, which I think is relatively easy to fix. So he's getting tied up in the details, which is natural when you start with a faulty premise. So first, we agree that essentializing black people as black is bad for multiple reasons. The first is that there's no such thing as biological race, and for that reason, we know that there is nothing actually different about Black people or any other racialized group. Which brings me to the second point, which is racialized groups. Racialization is a very real phenomenon that profoundly impacts the members of racialized groups, almost always in a negative way. And it is that shared experience of being racialized that creates the shared identities of, for instance, blackness or Latino-ness. And of course, that's an oversimplification, of course, more than how a person is socially racialized, defines their own self-identity or their identity as a member of a group and so forth. But you get my point. Now, on to Scott's question about homosexuality, just as biology has demonstrated that there are not multiple biological races. We also now understand sexuality not as two points in a binary or even three points in a, I don't know, trinary, ternary, trinity, something like that, but as a single spectrum. Everyone is on a spectrum. The idea that we share the same spectrum is foundational to the idea that no one is essentially different from anyone else based on their sexual attraction, just as we are not essentially different based on our skin color, eye color, or whether we're right-handed, left-handed, or ambidextrous. So we're different in that we look and act slightly differently from one another, but we're not essentially different in ways that should be held up as definitional to groupings we should be put in. In other words, a person should be able to have same-sex attraction without that being their foundational defining descriptor. And now just to finish off, I want to mention that there are very roughly a similar percentage of people who identify as homosexual as there are left-handed people, which itself used to be thought of as literally sinister for its differentness from the vast majority. This is from an explainer dictionary. It says the word sinister Today, meaning evil or malevolent in some way, comes from a Latin word simply meaning on the left side. Left, being associated with evil, likely comes from a majority of the population being right-handed. Biblical texts describing God saving those on the right, on Judgment Day, and images depicting Eve on Adam's left. Consequently, the Latin for right, Dexter— finds its way into positive words like dextrous, and the French word for right, droit, is found in adroit. And without having found any conclusive research on this topic, I would also throw in the likely connection to right-hand man and sitting at the right hand of God as additional examples of right-handed superiority, which makes me Unable to avoid thinking about a world in which, you know, maybe there's no conception of race or gender inequality, but there is right-handed superiority, right? People would try to hide their left-handedness to pass as right-handed to be accepted into mainstream society, and there'd be left-handed pride parades to generate solidarity, and preachers would argue that left-handed dominance may come naturally, but everyone still has the choice to use their right hand anyway, so as to please God, of course. People are kind of terrible, is what I'm saying. So, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. And, yes, that is the same Scott whose question we answered today. Thanks also to Amanda Hoffman for her work on all of our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes, all through the regular podcast player. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left Podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show, from
20: Bestoftheleft.com.